0: You're listening to It's More Complicated Than That, a podcast about world affairs produced by the students and faculty of the International Relations Program at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York.
1: Hi, I'm Kevin Dunn, professor of political science and director of the International Relations Program at Hobart and William Smith Colleges.
2: And I'm Stacey philbrick Yadav, chair of the political science department and co-host of this podcast.
1: Today's episode focuses on an exploration of the thinking of Adam Smith, who's known as the father of capitalism and whose classic 1776 book, Wealth of Nations, is generally considered to be the foundation of modern free market economic theory. We're joined with the architect of this episode, Yalamork Tafara. Hi, Yalamork, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
3: Hello, my name is Yalamork. I'm from Washington, D.C., and I'm a current senior at the colleges. I'm majoring in international relations with a double minor in economics and Africana studies. On campus, I'm co-president of Sankofa, the Black Student Union, as well as Model African Union. I've gotten to study abroad in Ghana as a part of the J-term with the colleges, as well as briefly in en Provence this past spring before COVID. Awesome. So...
2: Could you start by telling us how you got interested in this topic?
3: Absolutely. So I am currently in Professor Yadav's capitalism course now, where we read Smith's text, The Wealth of Nations, as well as various scholars discussing Smith's work, especially focusing on how many contemporary economists have misconstrued key elements of Smith's work often economists will fixate on popular Smithian ideals of the invisible hand and self-interest, taking these ideas out of context without recognition of the preconditions that necessitate the workings of the invisible hand. Smith was a moral philosopher, first and foremost, who prioritized human well-being above all else. And often with purely economic extractions of his text, we have explored in class how his ethical framework gets lost. This got me thinking about how the market has evolved into the globalization we have currently, and how it's straying from ideological Smithian conceptions of free trade in the global market. Further, I was interested in getting Professor Yadav's take on orienting Smith's work and notions of human well-being in current U.S. consumer culture, as well as the various externalities to globalization, both ethically with exploitation of workers abroad and the climate issues we continue to face. I hope to explore ideas of individual consumer and corporate responsibility and, and see how we can utilize the global pause that coronavirus has caused to rethink our consumer habits and the impacts that it has globally, to critically examine why we are consuming the way we are, the global impacts, and how we can change it.
1: So for this episode, Jan Work, you sat down with Professor Vikash Yadav to talk about these ideas and these issues regarding Adam Smith and his theories. So let's listen to that conversation now.
3: Well, hello, Professor Yadav. How are you?
4: Hi, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me.
3: Thank you for being here. Um, So to jump right in, so Adam Smith is considered to be one of the founding fathers of capitalism. However, in your class, we have read scholars that discuss how many contemporary economists are leaving out key elements of Smith's work, especially in regards to his moral and ethical views. What would you say is the most important element to underscore in Smith's work?
4: Um, I would say there are three that I think people should be thinking about. One is that there's a tendency to distill Smith into a kind of microeconomics framework where he is emphasizing rationality and utility maximization. And I think that is inaccurate that Smith's work is grounded upon moral sentiments which is not the same thing as rationality. And so I think that really skews the way his work is used if if you don't think in terms of Smith as a moral philosopher who has a particular ethical angle. I think the second is that Smith is interpreted as an economist, which is kind of odd since economics as a discipline didn't exist then. And what, what I try to emphasize is that the target audience of Wealth of Nations um, our future statesmen, his students uh, from his moral philosophy courses—that's who he's really talking to. Um, and so, I think it's important to to read Adam Smith carefully, not in a kind of abridged format, but in the uh, full Wealth of Nations, which is really extensive. Which is why we're taking a whole semester to work through it. And I think, I guess, the third part that that I don't see. Um, a lot of scholars thinking about is there's an important historical narrative going on in Smith's work, both in terms of the history of Europe and a broader history about the spread of the commercial society and the impact of joint stock companies on the new world um, and on places like India and China. So I think incorporating the historical narrative um would help people to better understand what liberalism is about and what smith was trying to convey in The Wealth of Nations.
3: Mm, Right. Thank you. And I think what's really interesting about your class, too, is that you talk about how a lot of people quote The Wealth of Nations, but haven't really read the entire book, The Wealth of Nations. And so being able to read The Wealth of Nations and dissect it in your class, but then also have another class period where we talk about um, sort of other theorists' perceptions of The Wealth of Nations has been really enriching. And with that being said, I mean, so for the past several years, the primary goal of the U.S. economy has been to grow its GDP and increase consumption, um, utilizing a quote that was mentioned in the story of Stuff, I quote, shortly after World War II, when envisioning how to ramp up the U.S. economy, retailing analyst Victor Labau stated, I quote, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction and consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. And President Eisenhower's Council of Economic Advisors chairman said that, I quote, the American economy's ultimate purpose is to produce more consumer goods. Um, can you explain what Smith regards to be the real wealth of a nation? And further, what do you think Smith would say to this?
4: Um, right. In terms of the real wealth of nations, I think one of the things Smith really does is foreground the, the role of the laborers. Um, and he particularly emphasizes that wealth is putting hands in motion. Um, people, putting people to work, giving them jobs, uh, helping them to increase productivity, and then wealth is itself is measured in terms of whether people are better clothed, better housed, and better fed, and that's what he's he's really deeply interested in. Now, there's a paradox in in Smith's writing that increased production increased supply is what causes prices to drop which is what allows the laborers to be better clothed better housed and better fed um, in the commercial society but of course smith is a philosopher and so he's well aware that the route to happiness is not participating in this particular um economy so it's it is a paradox right that in a way to actually create the wealth of nations, you do need to produce things. Um, But if you want to live a life of happiness, he clearly says you need to step outside of this. And for Smith, happiness is understood as a stillness or or a kind of ease of the mind um, that's not disturbed. So, I mean, he also sees his own job when he's writing The Wealth of Nations, that when you explain something complex, it creates ease in our mind because we suddenly understand what's happening. So in large part, what he's saying is that people participate in the economy because they are they are motivated by the esteem of others, and that's what motivates them to keep acquiring things. But that is a kind of um, constant tension, a constant vibration in in the soul or in the mind um, that needs to be managed. And so the the real way out of that is not to participate in that rat race. But for most people, most of the time, they're going to want to consume and produce things. I guess what I would say in terms of the larger quote that, that you're putting forward is, Whenever we think about consumption, we do need to think on a global scale. And so I do think that while um, consumption is not the route to happiness, a kind of knee-jerk approach to consumption and cutting it off would also be problematic, right? Because American consumption, it's not really so much about American production because the production is happening offshore more and more these days. But I think American consumption is part of what's helping other people get jobs and to lift themselves out of poverty. So there has to be a kind of more moderated way in order to deal with uh, American consumption. The, w- the way the world economy is set up at the moment is that we have uh, a massive savings glut in East Asia, and we have a uh, massive consumption going on in the U.S. and to some extent in Europe, and so this is a kind of structural problem rather than a moral one. I do think that it's it is interesting that there is such a movement against consumption at the moment when we are probably in the period of uh, one of the greatest commodifications of um, of aspects of life uh, that that we've ever seen, um, and so that does seem somewhat more of a kind of religious instinct. Um, but in terms of solving the actual structural problems, that's going to take a lot of effort and a lot of careful uh, and coordinated uh, relations with East Asia. Um, and to some extent, the non-financial corporate sector is also uh, contributing to the savings glut.
3: Interesting. Um, I remember one day in your class, we were talking about how wages have stagnated for a really long time, and how a lot of the the reason why we're not having you know a lot of um, like people in the working class revolt basically is because of the fact that prices are able to kept being kept low and be able to go to Walmart and. Pursures the goods at a cheaper price and so it's really interesting how interlinked our consumption practices are to other nations economies. So my next question would just be, how how do we begin to rethink our consumption practices and you touched on this a little bit, um, especially because of, you know, how interlinked they are with other nations' economies, but then also knowing the really negative repercussions they have on a lot of laborers abroad with, you know, awful working conditions and low pay, um, but still being able to prop up a lot of nations' economies and have economies grow on a really large scale, um, like you mentioned with with East Asia.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's a tough problem. I'm not sure um, I would have a, a quick solution to it, but I think one of the things to think about is our obligations to to people in other countries who are producing and what are those obligations. And Smith tended to argue that um, while some people may feel deeply connected to other parts of the world, maybe because of literature or because of um, travel in those areas, for the most part, he thought our ethical, our natural ethical obligations are to those who are closest to us. I mean, much of theory of moral sentiments and wealth of nations is predicated on ocular surveillance, like who you can see. Um, and so our moral boundaries are for Smith, um, naturally um, strongest with those who are closest to us. But Smith is not opposed to the idea that we should, if we could, feel some connection. And he does say that through literature and through the news, we might become more aware about the plight of others. And so I do think we have some obligations, but we can't expect that to be natural unless people have a connection, right? Maybe they are connected to another part of the world through Uh, a friend they met in college or through broader networks of friendships and that can make them more cosmopolitan. Um, But I think that is probably the route to working on how do we improve the livelihoods of others who are producing in other parts of the world. Um, And so I think that having that sense of obligation to strangers is probably uh, one of the routes to do that. I mean, I've been to factories in Egypt, which had contracts with uh, European and American firms, and I've been to factories that didn't have those, right? And I and I can see the differences when there are random inspections by European NGOs. Um, the quality of life for the workers is significantly improved. Their work conditions are improved. Um, it's not to say things are perfect, their wages aren't necessarily the, the best, um, but the the overall situation, there there can be a positive impact by creating that demand uh, from American consumers. So I think that's one route to doing that. In terms of like, what can Americans do about their own consumption? I think through rational persuasion of people that, you know, maybe um, instead of consuming things that are not environmentally sustainable, people should, Um, work to consume things that help make the environment a better place or uh, make the world a better place in different ways, to be more conscientious about what they are consuming and and the relationship between that consumption and the lives of others around them. Um, But that's a process that requires engagement, um, at least from a liberal framework. I don't think that can be done through um, authority or through... position um, if you want to preserve a a liberal um, political and economic framework.
3: Mm, Interesting. No, I think that's a great point, especially because um, I remember when we learned in your class, like Smith's theory of sympathy and proximity, a little bit about what you were talking about, how we often are the most sympathetic and the most empathetic to those who are close to us and how we often, it's hard to be sympathetic to people who are geographically further to us. And if we are, it's often has to do more with our own egos than um, actually having sort of any like kinship or relationship to people abroad. And so I think a lot of individual consumer responsibility has increased, I would say, over the past couple of years with people gravitating more towards fair trade and, and pushing for ethical consumer practices and, and really pushing corporations um, to be more ethical in their in their practices. But I think, you know, given Smith's distrust of merchants and belief that government is integral in making sure they don't collude, what would you say is corporate responsibility for Smith? And moreover, the government's responsibility in regulating these corporations?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's it's very clear that Smith was distrustful of the joint stock corporation and particularly of the East India Company, and rightfully so. By 1776, you know, the, the East India Company in 1757 at the Battle of Plassey um, acquires the Diwani of Bengal. So it, it begins acquiring territory and then expanding from there on out with its own military force. Um, so, and for... Smith, the activity of corporations is what unleashes what he calls the savage injustice of the Europeans. Um, and so there's a deep, deep pessimism and a deep distrust of the corporate form. I think in general, he would be opposed to corporations. I think this is something that um, people who look to Adam Smith to champion the market don't often get um, that, if we understand what he's what he's really saying about the invisible hand or, or the theory of moral sentiments, what he's kind of saying is that when you invest your capital, it's better to invest it in something that you can watch over. Um, and so he assumed that most people would invest in their local community and that that is what would allow the invisible hand to work. When he looked at corporations like the East India Company or the VOC for the Dutch, what he's seeing is layers of um, buffering or layers of um, indirect authority that separate the capital investor and the actual functioning of those corporations. And that's what allows for some of the cruelty and some of the inefficiency. Um, And so I think he would generally think the idea of corporations is not is not good. And of course, in the case of the East India Company, what he's also very upset about is that these were um, state-granted monopolies. And so I think in any situation in which there's a monopoly in Smith's framework, the monopoly distorts prices and doesn't allow the natural system to work. Um, And that's what prevents the creation of wealth and therefore of happiness in the people. So in general, I think he is for the most part going to be distrustful of corporate entities um, and the kind of work that they do. And yeah, in terms of like, what is the role of the state? The role of the state for Smith is clearly at some level to prevent this kind of collusion. Um, so I do think a lot of people think of Smith as championing the market and forget all of his, uh, distrustful attitude towards merchants. Um, and so he, he really thinks that, um, the state should probably do something, uh, or at least the statesman should be wary of the interests of these merchants. Um, in general, I think one of the things is like in his narrative in Europe, um, the advance of the commercial society created a much uh, more optimistic scenario where wealth was generated and overall situation improves. And on the global scale, I think what Smith is arguing is that the creation of corporations Um, And states that are in collusion with those corporations has created misery and uh, deep injustice that he doesn't think will be corrected for centuries to come.
3: Well, I think that's um, that's um, the, the misery and deep injustice, I think, is really interesting to see because that was his qualms with the British East India Company then. And it just makes me wonder, like, what would he think now <laughs> with the way that the legacies of colonialism have um, impacted the international division of labor currently? It's it's really reached a magnitude that I think is really hard to situate Smith's work and, and the Smithian framework in now um, because of, of the way that We've, we've expanded acro- globally across the world and the ramifications that we're, that we're um, facing. But I think it's interesting because many scholars employ Smith's idea of the invisible hand, and you talked about it a little bit in, in your previous answer. But I was just wondering, in your class, you stated that often this is discussed out of context from Smith's preconditions that necessitate, that necessitate the working of the invisible hand. Can you explain these preconditions and further the ramifications of employing this theory without them?
4: Yeah, I mean, the preconditions are are mainly that what sets off the emergent order or the invisible hand is really um, individuals trying to uh, ensure a return on their capital by investing it locally. And so I think what he's really saying at some level, and something that Keynes picked up on uh, when he helped design the post World War II. economy um, for the western states was this idea that the nation state is the natural space of accumulation for Keynes or for Smith it would be something closer to uh, local investment is really where investment where capital should be accumulated mainly for Smith it's it's because individuals need to feel assured that that capital is being put to good use Um, and once that's done, by employing people um, close by, you you help your countrymen, um, your community, uh, put more hands in motion, put more people to work. He's not opposed to international trade in any way, um, but he just thinks that there should be a sequencing or a priority. So sectorally, that priority is agriculture first and then manufacturing. And in terms of uh, where to invest, for him, it makes a lot more sense to invest locally. And then once capital opportunities uh, for investment are are filled up in the local market, then move further afield. But he certainly didn't understand or would not have approved of the idea of people um, taking their capital and investing abroad first. He thought that was very odd because you would then be under multiple sovereign jurisdictions. And I mean, our solution in our time has been to use the power of American hegemony to pressure weaker states and post-colonial states um, to at some level re- rework their legal systems to be more legible to our investors. And some of that is done in collusion with elites in those uh, countries. So it's not all like the the post-colonial countries are weak and and simply uh, are caving into uh, American pressure. Uh, A lot of the elites in in these post-colonial countries sit in your classrooms and um, in the United States and learn the same things you do and go home and want uh, to put a lot of those policies into practice. But either way, the situation is one in which we're trying to manage uh, something that is um, very difficult to do, uh, which is to make harmonious rules for investment and giving priority to the owners of capital over other members of society. And by doing that, I think that creates tension and pressure and often probably injustice in other countries. Um, So I think Smith's system is designed to produce interdependence and harmony and what, he, what upsets him is when people try to do shortcuts, to try to go around the system, um, either by using monopolies or by pressuring other rulers or by fetishizing precious metals. Uh, all of these things he sees as um, violations of what would otherwise generate prosperity and happiness for the laborers of a society.
3: Thank you. Um- I guess my last question would just be so now during during these times of you know of a global pandemic and the way that our consumption practices have drastically changed We talk about in your class as well how Americans generally are geared towards consuming rather than saving, um, but however, due to corona, are saving more and consuming less. Do you think that we can really monopolize on this time to sort of rethink our consumption habits and maybe, like you said, take some of our, especially as college students, some of the things that we're learning in our classes that are giving us more insight about the way that things work and, and sort of like the ethical and moral ramifications of our consumption practices to sort of rethink how to move forward? Do you think we can really monopolize on this time?
4: I think we can, and I think we should. I think one of the things we should see is that when there was a severe drop in consumption, the kind of economic impact and the harm that did to a lot of people. So we need to be very cautious, I think, um, because we don't want whatever changes are put into place to create as much pain as we've created you know, I think it was good for people to scale back their consumption in in the midst of a crisis, but you can see how interdependent our economy is and how many of your classmates, how many of our friends in the community suffered because of a dramatic drop in consumption. So we do have to think about that. And I think also what Smith helps us to think about is one of the, the things that's been dominating the American conversation about the economy is the trade deficit. And what Smith really wants to say is that this focus on the trade deficit is is misleading, that that this is something where merchants um, put pressure on the state um, because it's to their advantage to limit trade deficits in certain ways. And I think one thing we can think about is, well, we do have a problem with um, low savings in the United States uh, and very high levels of consumption. Part of that consumption is driven by the inequality in the United States, that in order to keep consumption going, we need to keep expanding credit, and that's what uh, is setting off uh, a lot of the endogenous um, financial problems in the U.S., but we need to avoid the temptation of kind of authoritarian solutions to um, dramatic levels of consumption, and we need to avoid the more populist solutions, which are blaming China, right, uh, or blaming uh, country X or Y for our trade deficit, right, and and then. Um, Instigating a whole bunch of um, trade wars uh, in order to correct uh, a perceived deficit. I think what's the, what's really causing the deficit is that is our lack of savings, and if you know if we were to somehow uh, eliminate. Um, trade with China, that wouldn't solve the deficit, it would just shift the source to a different country. And so I think we need to think about how do we encourage people to save, um, which is partly about encouraging people to step out of the rat race, and to gradually adjust their consumption to things that are more sustainable, and less uh, about acquiring the prestige or the regard of members of the community. Um, But I think that can all be done. It just requires conversations, it requires persuasion, um, and it requires a movement away from quick fixes and populist uh, rhetoric about um, blaming certain countries for things that are As much our own fault as that of of another country using, let's say, mercantilist um, currency manipulation or um, discriminatory trade practices.
3: Interesting. Um, I know I said that was the last question, but I have one more for you. (laughs) So I I think you made an interesting point about how we need to get people to sort of increase their exposure to to these issues in order to gain more sympathy, in order to rethink some of the practices that they're doing. And I was just wondering, so given, you know, some of the apathy that people have towards workers abroad, because of the fact that they're so far away, and how Smith was also pragmatic in the sense that he understood philosophy and like the way that people worked and, and knew that a lot of times like our consumption practi- practices were deeply interlinked with the way that we saw ourselves and we wanted to de- gain respect in society. And it's hard for us to have sympathy towards people that aren't next to us. How do you think the average American who may necessarily not have time to, like the college student, read hundreds of pages every day <laughs> for these classes that really in- talk about these issues in depth can increase their sympathy to workers abroad to maybe start rethinking their consumption practices?
4: I mean, I think what Smith is saying is that we have a natural capacity for sympathy and empathy. And so I think people who uh, want to form those connections, I mean, America is an incredibly diverse society uh, and more and more every day. I don't think it's actually very hard for Americans to form friendships with people who are different from themselves right and in their own communities they don't have to necessarily you know make a pen pal in China or in Vietnam in order to feel empathy for someone just getting to know people in their own community um, that's something that that comes in many ways naturally and I think once there there are friendships across ethnic class gender race boundaries that willingness to think uh, in the shoes of someone else uh, especially to realize that people come from all walks of life uh, in the united states i think that's how you how you build it um and they don't have to read adam smith i mean kwame anthony Appiah's cosmopolitanism which is a pretty short book um similarly makes this argument about what are our ethical obligations and he says our ethical obligations are to people we know it's not reasonable to demand that uh, people feel the same way about complete strangers they've never seen or heard from uh, or understand it's it's important to have real relations with people and that's what allows Um, sympathy and empathy to build and that's what creates the boundaries of the moral community but those boundaries once they're built they don't correspond necessarily to geographic boundaries or they usually won't uh, especially when you're in a society like the United States which is remarkably diverse even even in communities that look homogenous I think once you look a little bit below the surface you begin to see that well That person, you know, looks very similar to me, but they're actually, you know, immigrated from this particular place. Um, And so I think learning more about the people around us probably is the first step.
3: Awesome. Thank you. Employing some of Smith's blinding optimism towards the future as well (laughs) in that. Well, thank you so much for exploring these concepts with me and and helping us to situate it in Smithian framework. I think it's really helpful in, in sort of beginning to rethink some of the the problems that we're facing today.
4: Well, thank you for having me. It was it was a real pleasure.
2: Wow, that conversation went in some directions I really didn't anticipate. It highlights one of my favorite things about the international relations curriculum at HWS too. All of us in different ways are challenging the false dichotomy between empirical descriptions of the world and normative engagement with the ideas and values that underpin those realities and allow us maybe to imagine some different futures, which is what I think you were trying to get at. You two really brought that out in that discussion of Smith. I guess I should also probably say for the benefit of listeners who know us well that Professor Yadav and I don't actually sit around and talk about this stuff in our free time nearly as much as people might think. So this was definitely my first taste of what you've been doing in this class, which I know is new. It's a new addition to our curriculum. I knew that there were ideas and dimensions of Smith that are ignored or downplayed. And in my class, Yalomark, you read the idea of justice. And Amartya Sen talks a lot about the centrality of education, especially in Smith's work, when outlining the intellectual basis for Sen's ca- approach called the capabilities approach in development economics. So I'm attracted to the capabilities approach because it doesn't argue for the developing of people's capabilities as a form of human capital, because I think that's, that's really reductive and, and problematic but instead as people whose basic and not so basic needs have to be addressed so that they can make meaningful choices about how to live their lives. That's about as much as I had known about Smith's work though was via Sen, and that doesn't really capture I think the fullness of Smith as a moral philosopher in the way that you two just discussed.
1: Yeah, that was a fascinating conversation. That's interesting Stacy because I was just having a conversation in my class today about how we conceptualize development and how so much of economic neoliberalism is tied up with a certain understanding of Smith. And what I was struck with by this conversation was you know, the way Adam Smith was actually writing and how different that is from how that writing and he is talked about uh, in conversations around economic theory. I-, I learned a lot about morality and his commitment to ethics that was central to his understanding of capitalism but that something has been forgotten here, right, if not outright erased from these popular discussions of Smith today. Yalomor, what do you consider to be some of the most surprising things that came out of that conversation between you and Professor Yadav?
3: Since we've discussed a lot of these elements in class already, it was really nice to have Professor Yadav dive further in depth to how we can utilize Smith's framework in interrogating the current issues we are facing. I loved his optimism and the direction we are heading in facing these issues, especially regarding Smith's idea of sympathy and proximity, stating that the diverse relationships we cultivate with others and are willing to do so will increase our empathy to the various issues facing the producers of our consumer products abroad. I believe we have an ethical obligation to the producers of our goods abroad and to advocate against the exploitation they are facing. Like Professor Yadav stated, Smith was incredibly distrustful of merchants and believed it was the government's job to make sure they don't collude so that the free market can operate the way that it should. Additionally, Smith regards the real wealth of a nation to be the health and well-being of its people. And with American national happiness declining and the fixation on consumption, we can really utilize Smith's framework to rethink our priorities and fixation on consumption. This can allow us to simultaneously advocate against exploitation of workers abroad, faced through global supply chains, as well as our own nation's fixation on consumption that's just leading to increased unhappiness. Thus, if consuming more leads to unhappiness, and our consumption has extremely harmful externalities both domestically and abroad, how can we utilize this global pause coronavirus has given us to rethink our habits and priorities, and further cultivate meaningful connections with each other as well as people abroad? Like Professor Yadav stated, we don't need a pen pal abroad in order to get some connection or build empathy as global citizens. Due to globalization, we are all connected somehow and thus have a moral and ethical responsibility to each other. Professor Yadav showed us how utilizing Smith's framework can allow for his original conceptions of a free market to be utilized, to evaluate our current system, how we have strayed from it, and how we can build a better society moving forward that is more ethical for everyone.
2: So I think what really powerfully stood out to me was the challenge that Smith's work, or at least the reading of Smith's work that you two were doing, poses to kind of nationalist ways of thinking about identity and the the opening that it offers for forward thinking responsibility towards others. Um, Of course, at some level, we know that consumption is linked to production and that and lots of us try to be what we think of as responsible in our consumer practices. And for a lot of folks, that raises the question of buying American or buying local. But this discussion put a different spin on participation in the global economy. And um, it made me think about the late feminist philosopher Iris Marion Young, who I used to teach in the class that you took with me, but I, I don't anymore. And this is kind of making me regret that. And she challenges us to consider whether our obligations towards the well-being of nearby others have any greater moral standing than our relationship to more distant others. So she recognized that it really feels like our near others ha- have more of a moral pull on us. But she also built a powerful and for some people rather uncomfortable case in defense of our absolutely equal obligations to distant others. So one way that I talk about this in class is to say that Jung uncapitalized the word other. So when you and Professor Yadav were talking about how consumption practices here in the U.S. have impacted producers around the world, I found myself thinking about and really wanting to dig back through her footnotes and see if there's some kind of shadow conversation that she's having with Smith that I never really considered or picked up on before.
1: That's a fascinating concept there to uncapitalize our understanding of the other. I'm going to have to go back and look at that and think some more about that in terms of what Young's presenting uh, there in terms of how we conceptualize our own position within the global economy. But here's a random fact about Adam Smith. He was born in the town of Kirkcaldy in Scotland, where he also wrote The Wealth of Nations. And for a time, I just lived up the road there in the kingdom of Fife. And Kirkcaldy was already a significant trading port for the expanding global economy when Smith wrote Wealth of Nations. But it really blossomed afterwards as British imperialism and colonial conquest kicked into high gear, largely fueled by traders, explorers, and missionaries, including David Livingston, who was born a century later, but not too far away in the town of Blantyre. Smith didn't live to see the ways in which European imperialism and white supremacy helped create the global capitalist system. But Yalomor, your, your conversation there with Professor Yadav really gives me pause to reflect on how he might have actually interpreted these developments.
2: Absolutely. As a way of closing things out, one thing that we like to do with this podcast is to include something, a poem, a song that speaks to the themes of our discussion, but in a different way. So you chose the song I Get Out by the inimitable Lauren Hill, and it's a great track right from the first line. I get out of all your little boxes. So I know how I see this connecting to what you and Professor Yadav were talking about, especially in terms of a way of being that isn't easily reducible, right? That's able to recognize connections with diverse others. But I wonder if you could share with us why you chose it or what the song says to you.
3: Absolutely. the I Get Out of All Your Little Boxes also stood out to me the first time I listened to it. And Lauryn Hill is my favorite artist of all time. Her lyrics, track, flow, everything just embodying the most intimate parts of her life in such a vulnerable way to her listeners. I love the way she explores a lot of her ideology and ideological battles in her songs, as well as addressing societal issues issues from her perspective as a woman of color and how she's grown and become the person she is, and moreover, how she continues to grow and challenge traditional perceptions that we hold and have internalized from society. With how ingrained a lot of our habits are as a society, it's important to take a step back and evaluate how we were conditioned, the inequities of our current system, and how we can utilize the knowledge we hold to build a better, more equitable society. She says a line, the only way to know is to walk, then learn and grow. And at the very end of my interview with Professor Yadav, we talked about how we proceed from here and that it is important that we continue to learn and formulate relationships with others across the arbitrary racial, gender and socioeconomic lines to continue our awareness and connectivity to others on a global scale. And now with the pandemic and the various issues everyone is facing, it is increasingly important for us to have empathy towards others, especially with how interdependent we all are globally.
0: I'll get out of all your boxes. I'll get out. You can't hold me in these chains. I'll get out. Father, free me from this bondage. Knowing my condition is the reason I must change. Your stinking resolution is no type of solution. Preventing me from freedom in your pollution I won't support your lie no more I won't even try no more If I have to die, oh Lord That's how I choose to live I won't be compromised no more I can't be victimized no more I just don't sympathize no more Cause now I understand You just want to use me You say love then abuse me never thought you'd lose me but how quickly we forget that nothing is for certain you thought I'd stay here hurting your guilt trip's just not working repressing me to death because now I'm choosing life yo I'll take the sacrifice yo if everything must go then go that's how I choose to live <laughs> okay we're getting there <laughs> at least i had a chunk uh, yes okay, how i choose to live <laughs> oh. no more compromises i see past your disguises blinding through through my control stealing my eternal soul appealing through material to keep me as your slave but i'll Oh and you ain't seen nothing yet Oh I don't care if you're upset I could care less if you're upset See you don't change the truth And your hurt feelings no excuse To keep me in this box Psychological locks Repressing true expression Cementing this repression Promoting mass deception So that no one can be healed Respect your system, I won't protect your system When you talk, I don't listen, oh, let my father's will be done And just get out, oh, just get out of all this binders Just get out, oh, you can't hold me in these chains Just get out, oh, these traditions killing freedom Accepted what you said keeping me among the dead the only way to know is to walk the learn and grow but faith is not your speed or you'd have everyone believe that you're the sole authority just follow the majority afraid to face reality the system is a joke or you'd be smart to say passion in this living are you sure it's god you're serving obligated to a system getting less than you're deserving who made up these schools i say who made up these rules i say animal conditioning or just to keep us as a slave or just get out of this
1: Man, I love Lauren Hill. That's a fantastic song. That's like 20 years old almost now. Um, so I've been listening to Lauren Hill back in the 20th century, back when I was an undergraduate, back when I initially read Adam Smith. But I only read Adam Smith in terms of certain selections, which reinforced this narrow understanding based around the invisible hand trope that you talked about. Your discussion with Professor Yadav reminds me of the importance of delving deeply into primary text, such as Wealth of Nations, to avoid simplifying complex theories and philosophies. After all, it's more complicated than that.
0: You've been listening to It's More Complicated Than That, a podcast on world affairs produced by the students and faculty of the International Relations Program at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. This episode was conceived by Yalom Workteferra, Hosted by Stacey Philbrick Yadav and Kevin Dunn. The audio producer was me, Kelly Walker, with assistance from Kyle Mass. This has been a production of the IR program at HWS and the Geneva Sound Factory. Thanks for listening.